Well, how are you guys? Good, good, good. Good to see everybody. Thanks for being here today. Man, I'm excited that we are starting a new year together. My name's Carter. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Church, if we haven't met. And if you're new, I especially want to say a special welcome to you. I hope that you'll fill out a Connect card so that we can get a gift in your hand today because we want to make sure that you know you're our honored guest and we want you to feel that way while you're here. So please make sure you do that. We're glad you're with us. And today, as we start off the year, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1, if you want to turn there or find it on your device. Uh, We'll have it on the screens for you as well. But before I get into that, man, can we just celebrate that multiply total again of $76,000? Isn't that awesome? Man, God provides. Uh, I'm super excited to see how he's going to continue to provide for us, especially as we get into that permanent location this year, what what 90% of that's going to go toward. And of course, the other 10% will just give away for the sake of the mission, which is really awesome. I'm excited about that. But as we start the new year together, we do want to start by setting our direction as a church, okay? Now, we've rested over the break. I hope you guys got a good rest. I got a good, I know a lot of people were sick, so I hope you got, you know, to rest while you were sick and all of that. A lot of, a lot of sickness going around. I get that. Uh, but we're going to get moving again now. It's January. It's time to get going. We're going to get back into the mission. And anytime we get into the mission and we get moving, we need to make sure we're going in the right direction, right? You always want to go in the right direction when you start moving. And our direction as a church is always set by our vision as a church, to see people go from restless to redemption. That that vision that we have, restless to redemption, is guided by our four core values as a church. Can anybody name the four core values on the spot? Go. Okay, maybe not. I don't know. Everybody's very quiet. All right, that's fine. That's fine. Don't worry about it. They're They're out on one of those big things back there in big, bold letters. So hopefully you're looking at those as you leave every time here. But our four core values are this, to stay centered on the gospel, You're like, oh, yeah, of course, right, right, right. Hospitable toward outsiders, right, hospitality, to build authentic community among believers together here, and then to mobilize leaders to multiply disciples. You're like, ah, that's right, it's all coming back to me now, right? Those are our four core values. They guide everything that we do here as a church. And so over the next four weeks, we want to start the year that way with these four topics in mind for each of our messages, So today we're talking about staying centered on the gospel, but that helps us set the right course. That helps us set the right direction for ourselves as a church, keeps us on the right path as we pursue our vision together. And we saw God do some amazing things in 2023, did we not? I mean, nine baptisms, we had the largest gathering we've ever had at Christmas at 180 people, a little over 180 people. It's just really awesome to see God do that and more, provide a new place for us that we're going to move into this year. It's all good stuff. That means 2024 is going to be an even better year, I believe, because there's so many things on the horizon. We can see God do even more than those things here with us and through us, and there's no better time than right now to get moving in the same direction as a church, right? And that's, that's what a lot of people do to start their year. Uh, they, all, they, they, they set a direction for themselves. Maybe you've even done this. Some people set the direction for their lives of self-discipline. So maybe that's where you're at this year. Maybe you set that direction for yourself personally. It would be a New Year's sermon if I didn't you know, mention the resolutions that we might make. New Year, new you, of course. So you might set some goals for yourself and discipline yourself. You want to work out more or you want to eat less junk or you want to spend more time doing meaningful things or spend more time with your family or something good like that. Maybe cut out social media in your life, something else like that where you're disciplining yourself. That's your direction this year, accomplishing those goals. That's your vision for your life for 2024. Others might set a personal direction of happiness in their lives. 
And maybe that's you today. I don't know. Maybe you want to live the American dream that we, we talk about that here often. You want to chase after a better life. You know, you're chasing after the job or you're chasing after the better house or the better car or you need a higher income in your life because you think that those things will make you happy. And so you want that to be the direction of your life, being happier. You want to be happier at the end of this year than you are at the beginning of the year. So you chase after those things to make you happy in your life. That's your direction. And, you know, while setting goals and being disciplined is good in and of itself, and while being happy isn't bad, of course, in and of itself, those things can't ultimately give you, I think, what you're actually looking for when you set a direction like that for yourself. They might be good things, but they really can't be ultimate things because they are going to fail us in some way in the end. You can try to discipline yourself all you want, but eventually you're going to fail in some respect and you're not going to be able to discipline yourself. You're going to lose control or you're going to become emotional or whatever it is in your life. It's going to fail you. Or you can try to be happy all you want, but life might not turn out the way that you think it should. You know, you can't control all your circumstances, so you don't know how happy you're really going to be. Things like this can't ultimately satisfy us. What they can do, though, is they can give us a greater longing for those things that we know can satisfy us. They give us a longing for eternal, lasting satisfaction. So what I'm going to argue today, because I think Peter argues it in our text, is that we're longing for an eternal hope that is going to last and will never let us down. It's not going to fail us in the end. And, you know, hope is simply what we want to see happen in our future. Like We hope for better things in our life as time goes on. But anything that fades away or that's focused on this material world, it's never going to give us that kind of hope that lasts. And what Jesus taught us, and now Peter will teach us by extension, is that we're looking for something not of this world. We're looking for something eternal. That's where we want to put our hope, because it will last. It's like what C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, Mere Christianity. If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, then the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. I think that's so sharp. C.S. Lewis, he's the guy, right? So here's my main point for today. If you're taking notes and you want to write this down, If we want to have a real hope for the future that lasts and that will never let us down, then we have to keep our eyes on eternity. So you can write it like this, keep your eyes on eternity. That's our main point for today. That's our focus for the text. That's what Peter is going to teach us here. And that's actually what it means to stay centered on the gospel. If that's our first core value, then if we stay centered on the gospel, then we're going to naturally keep our eyes on eternity because the gospel is that good news about Jesus giving us a hope of an eternity with him and his people forever, right? So when we stay centered on the gospel, we're naturally going to keep our eyes on eternity and vice versa. And what we're going to do is make this the focus of our church for 2024, eyes on eternity. We're always running in the direction of our vision. That's never going to, the vision's never going to change. We want to see people go from restless to redemption, but we want to do something to focus our minds in that direction, to focus our lives We do this every year as a church. Last year, we wanted to focus on fostering deep, dependent worship, learning how to deeply depend on God and worship Him alone. The year before that, we actually wanted to focus on hospitality. We wanted to be so hospitable to outsiders that they could feel Jesus' love through us. Well, this year, what we want to do is keep our eyes on eternity, have that eternal perspective on everything that we do in our lives. That's how we need to start this year off and get going in the same direction, in the right direction, I think, that God would have us to go in. And so 1 Peter is going to teach us that. Let's go ahead and turn there. 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to read this and see how it pushes us to keep our eyes on eternity. Let's start in verse 1. Peter wrote this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, 
to those chosen living as exiles dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. What, a, what an intro, right? Yeah, we don't, we're not, maybe, we're, maybe we're a little, you know, confused by that or we don't understand that because, you know, we start our texts off by saying, hey, bro, you know, this is, this, is a, this is a heck of an intro to a letter, right? <laughs> we don't know what this means. But basically, just before we go on, let me give you some context here because Peter is, is one of Jesus' disciples, one of his followers, who's now become an apostle in the church. And all that means is he's become a leader in the church, maybe the leader because he's Peter. And traditionally in church history, he's like the leader of the church. And he's writing to encourage Christians who lived in these areas, now modern-day Turkey. So think the Galatians, the Ephesians, the Colossian churches. These are all churches we've probably heard of from the New Testament, right? Among others, we've probably heard of. And he's writing to encourage them because he's saying that they're living as exiles in the land. Now, one of our more theologically inclined members actually wrote a blog series on this a couple of years ago. I'd highly encourage you to go to our blog and read this. He talked about why Christians live as exiles and what that looks like of living as an exile in the world. It's probably four or five articles. I'd encourage you to go look that up this week if you want a deeper discussion on that because he goes very into detail, very in-depth on it. But what I just want to quickly say on this, in a nutshell, this is the Christian life. A Christian lives as an exile, so you can write this down. Christians are exiles in this world. That's what it means to be a Christian. And what that means to be an exile is that we don't belong. When you're in exile, you don't belong where you are. Peter makes it pretty clear he's speaking to all Christians who follow Jesus here, and he's comparing us as Christians, as Jesus' followers now, to Israel in the Old Testament then, back when they were exiled to Babylon. They didn't belong there. That wasn't their home. They were foreigners in that land. They were exiles. Why does he call Christians this? Well, because while we live in this world, we don't belong to this world. When we start following Jesus and we identify with him now, we don't belong to the world. We belong to him. We're foreigners to the world now. When we believe in Jesus and we're chosen and we're holy and we're set apart is what holy means. He'll go on to say in chapter 2, we're a nation of priests We've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. That means that we're different than the world. We don't belong to that any longer. We identify with Jesus. And so Peter's saying that Christians, while we might be citizens of the Roman Empire, or he's talking to his people, while they might be citizens of the Roman Empire, their true citizenship is in God's kingdom in heaven. So for us, while we might be citizens of the United States here, man, our true and primary citizenship is in God's kingdom in heaven. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't you know, try to be good citizens and all that. That's a whole different discussion. Because being a citizen of heaven means you try to be a good citizen of where you're at. But it means that our primary identity, who we are now, has completely changed. And he's going to use some radical language as we go on, talking about a new birth. I mean, that's radical. Totally different now when you follow Jesus. So our primary citizenship is in heaven. Let's go on. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You're being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. 
You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, which is more valuable than gold, which through, though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I mean, these are, these are all future-oriented stuff, right? Verses 3 and 4 are key verses for us, so we're going to come back to them in a minute. But the rest here shows that Peter is writing to Christians amidst growing persecution, they're, they're, they're going to start suffering some things in the Roman Empire. And he's telling them, hey, keep your eyes on eternity, even though you're suffering and going through trials. Now, the suffering is like gold, he says, going through a refinement process. You know, anytime you see a precious metal like gold going through a refinement process, you're taking something that's raw, which is not worth as much, and you're purifying it. And you're taking out all of the impurities so that it becomes worth something of immense value because you're, you're taking out all the bad and you're leaving what's good and pure and right. And the suffering of the saints, he says, is like that. Suffering prepares us for praise, for glory, for honor on the day that Jesus is going to return. All things that are of immense value. Suffering prepares us for that. So you can write this down if you're taking notes. Suffering now refines and prepares us for eternity then. I don't know, that's not, you know, the message that we always want to hear as Christians. But suffering now is something that's good for us. Now, maybe you've heard other religions talk about this, talk about suffering in life. I immediately think of Buddhists, for example, you know, because for them, life is suffering. I know that's a little bit of an oversimplification of what they believe, but basically, they think that life is pain, life is suffering. And what you simply have to do is come to terms with that. You have, to, you have to become one with, you know, this transcendent universe that's impersonal, but that's the whole idea of nirvana and that kind of thing. You just have to be okay with the suffering and learn to deal with that on your own. And I think they get it half right, maybe, I think. Because the Christian view is that suffering in this life is not unavoidable. It's necessary if we're going to be refined and molded into the image of Christ. I know that's not the feel-good message that we always want to hear in Christianity where, you know, if you come to Jesus, everything's going to be okay. And in some eternal sense, as we're talking here, you keep your eyes on eternity, it will be okay. But man, in this life now, suffering is unavoidable. And Christianity doesn't pretend like it's not. Christianity promises suffering, as a matter of fact. You can't avoid it. The author of Hebrews actually tells us that Jesus himself is made perfect through his suffering. He set the example for us in that if our Savior, the one that we follow, is going to suffer and did suffer on our behalf, then we should expect nothing less than suffering. Now, we can have hope in the suffering. We can have joy in the midst of suffering. But suffering in a broken world is inevitable, and Christianity doesn't gloss over that and try to make it something that it's not. And see, our hope isn't in some transcendental concept of becoming one with this impersonal universe either, like in Buddhism. It's knowing and being known by a very personal God who created the universe. That's where our hope lies. And that gives us hope because we know that our personal God is with us even in the midst of suffering. And he's not only in our suffering with us, but he's also giving us that suffering or allowing that suffering to happen for our good so that we become more like Jesus. It's both of those things. See, we're not left to deal with suffering on our own. God grieves with us in our suffering. God draws close to us in our suffering. In our lowest moments, he's there with us, grieving with us. And I remember talking to one of my cousins about this probably about a year and a half ago. We went to visit her, and she's not a Christian. Um, her mother died when she was a kid, young age, 
And understandably, she still holds maybe some bitterness toward God about that. She grew up in the Catholic faith, but she's since kind of left that and a little bit more of a spiritualist now. So she kind of believes in an impersonal God, you know, a force, the universe, if you will, that kind of new age concept of, of God being like everything. And he's, you know, and we were talking about this and I said, I don't know how you could believe in an impersonal God. And she's like, well, I don't know how you could because where was he when my mother died then? You know, he didn't feel like he was close to me then. Where was he? And, you know, with tears in my eyes, I just looked back at her and I said, he was right there with you, grieving with you. Can't you imagine that God was feeling that grief even more than you were feeling it? Because he was not only grieving the death of your mother, but he was grieving the grief that you yourself were feeling. He was right there with you. And maybe you've come here today and you're, or, or you're listening to this online and you're suffering in that way and you're wondering where God's at. Maybe you have health issues that are serious and could even lead to death. I know we've got at least one of our members right now who's struggling through that. She's just had a baby and had a lot of complications, and we've been praying for her for the last couple of months now. Maybe you're in that situation, you're suffering, or maybe you're mourning the loss of a loved one that you desperately want to spend more time with, but you just can't because they're gone. Or maybe after the holidays, you're dealing with family issues and broken relationships that have been festering for years, and you're suffering through that, or maybe some of you guys have even recently suffered for your faith because you tried to invite somebody to our Christmas service and they laughed in your face or snubbed you for it and they no longer want to talk to you anymore because you're simply trying to be faithful to the mission. I don't know why you're suffering, what your cause is for suffering today, but God is right there with you in it. He's walking beside you and you're suffering and he's using it to refine you and make you ready for eternity. Of course, there's a lot more we probably could and should say on suffering, but let's go ahead and finish out the reading. Verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him, and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you're receiving the goal of which your salvation, of, of, of your faith, for which the salvation of your souls. See, this is where a skeptic might look in at this and say, okay, see, this is why being a Christian is dumb. Because even the Bible will say, you can't see it. You can't see what you believe in. Why would you hope in something that you can't even see? Look, the Bible admits it. It's stupid. But see, we all do this at times. We all live our lives this way where we believe in things that we can't see. I think money is maybe one of the best examples. We put our money away now for, so we can receive the goal of retirement later on. Now, we can't see the retirement. You know, we can't see it happening right now. We can, we can only just keep putting money in and investing so we can't see, but we hope that our investments will pay off in the end. And that's all Peter's saying here. It, it, it's not like an earthly investment, though, like money that can be taken away with the ups and downs of the stock market or by theft, somebody stealing it from you, or some other reason it could be taken away by death or whatever it might be. No, no, no. The hope that we have that we might not be able to see now is imperishable. It's a hope that will never fail, that we can count on, that we can bank on, verse 10 he says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched and carefully investigated. They inquired into what time or what circumstances the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. In other words, all of, all of the Old Testament is about this. In other words, all of the prophets in the Old Testament are, are, are leading to this kind of thing. Verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. In other words, the scriptures are for us to know who Jesus is. 
These things have now been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Man, all of the future-oriented languages here, all of this hope-oriented language that Peter uses is meant to give us encouragement and hope for our future. If hope is simply what we wish for our future, then what we hope and envision and believe for our future will affect how we're living our lives now. So here's an easy way to say it. You can write this down. What we hope for is what we live for. That's all Peter's saying here. The hope that we have will be how we live our lives. It will affect how we live. What we hope for is what we live for. Whatever we put our hope in is the direction of our lives, if you want to put it that way. That's, how we, that's what we run after. That's what we chase after. It's the direction that we're living our lives. So, for example, if you only want success in your job, and that's the extent of how you envision your future, that's where your hope is, is that you become successful and have everything that you want in your job, whatever it is, whatever it takes to realize that future vision, is how you're going to live your life now. So if your future hope is something like success, then you might do anything to get there, including maybe lying, Stealing, cheating, trampling over others in the process because you're going to do whatever it takes to get to that hope that you want. Your hope affects how you live your life now. What you hope for is what you live for. Or, or maybe if your only hope is to be loved and accepted by others and you envision a future where everybody's pleased with you and accepting of you in every way that you can imagine, then you're going to do whatever it takes to win their approval and you're going to live your life now for that hope that you have for the future. So you're going to bend over backwards for people to please them. Or are you going to look for love outside of a marriage relationship if you don't feel like your spouse is giving you the love and acceptance that you think that you need or deserve? Or maybe you're going to pine after the love that you don't have, but you think that you want. Because your hope is in being loved and accepted at all costs by others. So what you hope for is what you will live for now. Or I'll give you one more, in case that's not (laughs) getting you right between the eyes. If your only hope is to be happy, as we talked about at the beginning, then it will be what you live for now. Your, your happiness will be what you live for. I read a Business Insider article a few uh, months ago uh, that surveyed over 2,000 Americans, and the majority of whom said that they believe money does buy happiness. thought it was a very interesting article. Respondents were asked by generation what annual income they would need in order to be happy. And so I'll give it to you based off of the amounts, starting with the lowest, Surprisingly, I don't know if you feel this way, surprisingly, the baby boomers were at the lowest saying they needed $124,000 a year in order to be happy. If they had that annual income, then they could be happy. Gen Z said $128,000 a year could make them happy. You're like, okay, okay, I feel that, right? Gen X said $130,000 a year would make them happy. If they just had $130,000 a year, then they would be happy. Gen Y, or millennials, my generation, we came in at a meager $525,000 a year, okay? So we all knew millennials were the greediest generation of all, okay? We, we all knew that. But listen, it's just because we got a raw deal. We've been through many recessions. All kinds of stuff have happened. We had not been able to live the American dream the way that we wanted to, okay? Oh, geez, don't, don't judge us as millennials. Come on. But I think that's so interesting, don't you? That because the, the article goes on to make the argument that money equals happiness. I mean, that's the mentality. 
That's what, it, that's what they're saying. They're arguing that. And the only thing that stands in the way of your happiness are those worries that we have around money. So student loans, rising inflation, higher interest rates on things. Anybody been talking about those over the last couple of months? I know that pegs me, right? Of course, if we just think a little bit more deeply about it, though, obviously, and we know that that cannot be true if we just think about it logically. Because if you lose a loved one, there is no amount of money that can replace the happiness you have of being with that person. Happiness cannot, I mean, money cannot buy your happiness. Or when you have all of the pleasures that money can buy and you still feel empty, how many millionaires and billionaires out there have we heard stories of who had it all and they're still empty? Why? It's because money cannot buy your happiness. You think that it can, but it, money, money cannot help you in those lowest of moments in your life when you feel depressed or you feel alone. Money just can't do it. We're longing for a hope that lasts. We're longing for something eternal that will never let us down. And that hope that we have will affect how we live our lives now. I think I mentioned this last month, but I thought it was good. I want to give it to you again so that you can understand this. Take two people and give them the exact same job. They have the same responsibilities. They have the same bosses. They work with the same people. They have the same hours. Let's say they work 80-hour work weeks. Some of you guys are like, mm, I feel that. But say they work 80 hours a week. That's a lot, right? That's a grueling job. It's hard. It's demanding. But say that you pay the one person $30,000 a year for doing that job. Say you take the other person, you pay them $30 million for the year to do that job. Who do you think is going to have more hope in the midst of their suffering? Right? The 30,000 person is probably going to give up and move on to a better situation because the outcome isn't worth the work. But take the $30 million person. They're going to do whatever it takes. They're going to work through those grueling hours. They're going, to, they're going to know that their suffering for a little while is going to equal something of greater worth for them. And so the hope that they have for the future is going to affect how they work now. Does that make sense? That's what our eternal hope in Christ does for us. What we hope for is what we will live for. So the real question is, what kind of hope do you have? What kind of hope do you have? I'd write that down and think about that this week. Is it a $30,000 hope? Or is it a $30 million hope? In other words, do you have a future hope that's worth it? Will it satisfy you despite the circumstances that you face in life? Or are you putting your hope in things that aren't going to last? And that will ultimately never deliver the things that you're looking for? Peter tells us we're looking for an eternal hope. To be with Jesus and his church forever in a new body on a new earth, with a new purpose that can never be taken away from us or let us down. It's having that hope that makes you a Christian. That's what it means to be a Christian. So being a Christian doesn't just mean going to church. It doesn't just mean trying to be a moral person and do all the right things, or even maybe even believe all the right things, to a point anyway. Being a Christian is knowing the right person, right? It's knowing the personal God of eternity. It's knowing Jesus who gives us a living hope that will never let us down. So often, guys, I know that we try to earn or work for our perfect future. That hope, we put our hope in ourselves. We put our hope in our work. We put our hope in our money or whatever it is that we think will give us a better future. This is why I talk about the American dream so often here. Because the American dream literally teaches us to think this way. Chase hard after what you want, and if you work hard enough, you'll get all your dreams. They'll all come true. And listen, I, 
at some point, that, that's not wrong in some sense in America. You can do that in an earthly sense. I'm not, I'm not trying to dog on that too, too much. But the problem is that can never be true in a spiritual sense. And we can never equate that to our relationship with God, ever. Hoping in earthly things will always let us down. It'll always let us down. There's no possible solution to that. The problem is we can work hard all of our lives. We can get all the material wealth and possessions that we could possibly ever want and more. We can get that trophy wife. We can get that Mac Daddy husband if we want to. You know, We can get that fame. We can get the accolades that we've worked so hard to earn from other people. We can have all the self-discipline and success in the world. It doesn't matter. At the end of our lives, we will die. And it will all become worthless. And you're like, yeah, but, you know, live for today, Why, right? Well, I mean, if you really think that you live that way, but I would argue that you don't live that way. I would argue that you're longing for something beyond what those things can provide for you. Because if you put your hope in those things, it's much too small. It's a hope that's way too small. Because the hope will end. It'll, it'll come to an end. I mean, if I'm looking for hope in all my stuff, if I'm looking for hope in my work here, or if I'm looking for hope in my, even in my wife and kids and my family, you know, I mean, the last time I compared the pictures that we have from 14 years ago when we were married to the pictures we just took a couple of weeks ago at Christmas, my wife and I are dying. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> Let me step back for a second. Uh, at the very least, we're fading, if we could put it that way, right? Well, I don't know if that saves it or not, but we're fading. Maybe me more than her, okay? <laughs> She's still the paragon of beauty and, and, you know, all of that. But, I mean, we look at our picture, I'm like, these, these things are fading. They're fading. <laughs> Let me see if I can recover from that. Every day, sorry, this is not to be morbid, but every day is another day drawing closer to death. Right? I mean, it just is for all of us. We can't put our hope in those things. Because they will let us down one day. And we need a hope that doesn't fade. And Peter is telling us that God offers us a living hope. Let's read verses 3 and 4 again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he's given us a new birth into two things. Into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And two, into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. If we accept his mercy, then our hope can be eternal. That's the offer here. You can write this down. Jesus offers us a living hope. That's what he's offering us. You're like, it's too good to be true. That's the gospel that we center our lives on. As Christians, this is what it means. We believe he's done everything necessary for us. It's life with him and his people forever. A living Hope, an undying hope, not an undead hope like the zombies, okay? An undying, living, eternal hope, immortal, never-ending. And we get this inheritance, he says here, that we haven't earned. He just gives it to us because of who we are and how much he loves us. It's, immeasurable. it's an immeasurable inheritance. If you look at the NLT translation of this, it says priceless. It's a priceless inheritance that we received as a gift. You know what it means to be priceless, right? That means it's, it's of such immeasurable value that you can't even quantify its worth. You can't even put a number on it. It's more valuable than any possible number or any kind of thing that money could buy. It can't. 
It's like those MasterCard commercials from the 90s. I don't, maybe they still have them now. Have you ever seen, do you remember these MasterCard commercials? They'll get you choked up if you're not careful when you watch these things, okay? I, the, the, ones from the, the old ones are the best because I, I looked up one just for this. I was like, man, let me remember some of these. I looked up one about uh, the dad going to the baseball game with his son. Maybe you remember this. It starts off by going, two tickets, $28. Two hot dogs, two popcorns, two sodas, $18. One autographed baseball, $45. Real conversation with your 11-year-old son, priceless. All right? For everything else, there's MasterCard. There's some things money can't buy. For everything else, there's MasterCard. That's how it goes, right? You can tell it's from the 90s because the prices, by the way. <laughs> Talk about inflation, okay? <laughs> but see, it's like that on a cosmic scale with what Jesus has done for us, right? You can't put a value on it. It's priceless. It's of infinite value and worth, more than we could ever imagine. We can't pay it on our own. We can't even hope to pay it. If we tried to pay it, it'd be like trying to put a price tag on having a real conversation with your boy at a baseball game. You just can't do it. It's priceless. It's valuable. More valuable than you can put money to. And yet, because the very infinite and eternal God who created us came into this world, just like we celebrated this Christmas, he's done the impossible. He's paid for us. He, he came in the world in order to purchase our lives back from death by paying with the priceless life of his own son. Why? Because he values us eternally and infinitely in a priceless way. So you've got to realize you're the 11-year-old boy in the commercial to God. That's how God feels about you. You can write this down. Our eternity is priceless to God. So he paid for it with the priceless life of Jesus, his own son. God sees you as priceless. He sees me as priceless. And he's paid with the priceless life of Jesus so that we could be with him forever in eternity. That's the gospel that we center our lives on here at this church. That Jesus lived the perfectly holy life that you and I should but won't and don't. We refuse to do that. And now we deserve death and punishment for our sin but instead we get Jesus' perfection given to us as that priceless inheritance instead. That's the true definition of mercy that Peter's talking about here. Not getting what we deserve in exchange for something we could never earn. It's priceless. And then Jesus rose from the dead and he's giving us this undying, living hope. It's living. It's, it's living forever. It's eternal, undying hope that we too will get to be in eternity with him forever and ever. I love that because Peter means that the moment that we start to follow Jesus, we put our trust in him. We're now citizens of not this world any longer, but of heaven. We're reborn. We have a new birth. That's the new birth he's talking about here. And that's the new birth that Jesus talks about with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. We're new. We're in a new family. We have a new identity now. See, there are two things that I think are striking about using that language of new birth here. First is that it's total. When you're born, you start a completely new life, right? You can't get out of it. It's just a new life that you've started. It's not like you used to live. And so when you're reborn and you have a new birth spiritually, you can't chase after the things that you used to chase after. That's not your direction in life anymore. Your direction is now going after Jesus, keeping your eyes on him and on eternity with him forever. It's a new, totally new life, total, total in scope. But the second thing that's striking about that new birth language is that when you're born, you don't have a say in the matter, right? 
Like, you didn't just decide to be born one day. Your parents decided something. Actually, I won't go into that. That's a whole different talk. But generally speaking, out of their love for one another, you were the result. And that's what our salvation is like for us. It's a new birth into a living hope that we contributed nothing toward. And it didn't originate with us. It originated with God's love for us. And that's why we're here. That's why we're saved. That's why he brings us into his eternal family. Jonathan Edwards said that the only thing we have to contribute, we contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin that made it necessary. That's all we bring to the table. We can only bring our imperfections. We can only bring our brokenness. And God, despite our brokenness, maybe because of our brokenness, looked in and said, I value them so much, they're so priceless to me that I'm going to enter in and I'm going to save them and I'm going to purchase them back so they can be in eternity with me forever. That is the gospel that we believe as Jesus' followers. He's given us this inheritance as a gift of mercy and grace. And when you and I step into that new birth as believers, and we start to live this new life in Christ in this life now, it gives us a $30 million hope that's going to show us what our eternity is going to look like. That's why we're laying out a big vision this year as a church. This is Vision Sunday after all, so I want to turn to a little bit of vision here for you guys because we want to keep our eyes on eternity as a church this year. But we want to see people go from restless to redemption. And like I said, that vision will never change, but our direction might a little bit. And so what I want to do is just give you a few vision points here and then two specific points of application to end our time together. But as I've already said, restless to redemption will never change. But as we keep our eyes on eternity this year, we're almost a three-year-old church. We'll be three this, this Easter. So it's time to look into the future a little bit further and say, what is our, where are we going together? What does this look like? How, do, how are we going to bring people from restless to redemption? How are we going to realize that vision over time? Because if you don't set goals, then you're not going to see anything happen specific. You know, you can say you want to see people come from rest, go from restless to redemption all you want, but unless you start to put some real things, tangible things to it, some markers that we can see of God's movement in our church, then we probably won't see anything. Maybe we'll realize it, maybe we won't, but what we want to do is put goals to it. And so we're praying for some specific things over the next five years as a church. And they're going to be in three major categories. We want to pray for seats, salvations, and sending. And each category, you have to understand, leads to the next thing. Because the more seats that we have filled, the more salvations we're going to see. And the more salvations that we see, the more sending we can affect in the world. That's just kind of how it works in God's economy. That's how it works in reality. See, the Great Commission is to make disciples of all nations. And we want to multiply disciples here. We want to mobilize leaders to multiply disciples, which means we want to see disciples, like you guys, following Jesus, who then make more disciples, who then also go out and make more disciples. And that's why sending is such an important thing for us because we can't multiply here as a church unless we send. Now, it's great to grow. We want to be a growing church. That's what seats is. And growing is an important thing to do, you know? And every time we see new people come in here, if you're new here today, we're glad you're here. If you came in the last, like, six months, we love that you're here. We want to grow. But growth is not the same as multiplication. Multiplication is exponential, Right? It goes from not from one to two to three, but it goes from one to two to four and to eight and to 16. And it, uh, you, you get the picture, right? It, it multiplies. Well, the only way we can do that is if we send. 
And so if you've been here at all any length of time, you know that we as a church want to be and are a sending church. And we've partnered with church plants and missionaries for the last two and a half years that we've existed. And we will continue to do that. But eventually we want to see God do that from inside where we raise up leaders here to be sent out. We want some of you even to be sent out for the sake of the mission so that we can multiply the kingdom all over the world. Make disciples of all nations. And so for us, I want to just lay out this vision for you. And it's going to seem big because it is. It's a God-sized vision for the next five years. But we want to see God use us to impact Roanoke and our nation and the world. And so we, we want to pray for these specific goals. Glad you're sitting down because here they are. Our leaders have heard this. This comes from our directional elders. This is the vision for our church. We want to see 1,000 people in our seats in the next five years. And we want to see 500 salvations in the next five years in our city. And we want to see 50 people sent out to the nations from our church in the next five years. So that means we have to multiply. We have to see some exponential growth here. That's huge. Those are huge goals. But it's not just growing for the sake of growing. We don't want to just be a megachurch for the sake of growing. I, I talked to a pastor a, a couple of months ago who was telling me that he took over a church about 20 years ago here in Rome. Great guy. I love this guy. I love this pastor. I'm actually going to go hang out with him again here in the next couple of weeks. He's an older guy, though. He's been in his church for 20 years, and he said when he came into his church, the vision for them was to be a thousand-person church. That was the vision. Great. Thousand-person church. They built this big building, massive amounts of seats, massive amounts of space, huge parking lot. He said they never realized that vision, and then the church declined. And it's because the vision was all about growth, you know? And he understands that, and he's like, we got to get people to share the gospel. We got to get people to multiply I'm like, yeah, man, that's it. Because if the vision is just about being bigger, then we might as well shut the doors. I don't want to do that. But if it's about being bigger so that we can send more and multiply more for the sake of the kingdom, then that's what we want to do. And I know that if we have more people in our seats, then we're going to see way more salvations here. And if we see way more salvations, then we're going to see way more sending. That's the whole deal. That's the vision. Our sending pastor, Andrew Hopper from Mercy Hill in Greensboro, he talks about this and talked about it with, with his church uh, recently because they just turned 10 as a church not long ago, last year, as a matter of fact. And they ran the numbers over the 10 years to find out, some of it's just a numbers game, to get to these goals. And they found out that it takes them 10 first-time guests to get to one baptism for them. I'm, I'm almost positive these numbers are true. I probably should have double-checked them before I told you. But it's somewhere around 10 first-time guests to get to one baptism. That's a lot. 10 first-time guests to get to one. They've seen over... 2,000 baptisms, by the way, in the last 10 years. It took them 10 first-time guests to get to one baptism. It took 20 baptisms for them to see one person sent out on a church plant. And, you know, we're the result of that. They sent about 20 people to Roanoke from Mercy Hill to plant this church. Man, we want to be a part of a legacy of that, but some of it's just a numbers game. It's just like, man, that means we got to get more people in doors who want to live on mission, who can be mobilized, so that we can see more salvations because they're going to be sharing the gospel with their neighbors, as I'm sure you guys are this year. And we're going to see people get baptized here, and then we're going to see people get sent out for the sake of the mission because people get it so deep down in their bones, and their eyes are so focused on eternity that they know they're not living their life for a job. They're not living their life for the American dream. They're not living their life for something so small as that. They're living their life for the kingdom. They're living their life for what Jesus wants for them, to make more disciples who make more disciples who make more disciples. So we want to grow because it enables more sending. That's our vision over the next five years. I hope you guys will join us in that. 
And by the year, the end of this year, 2024, that means that we want to see about 250 people in our seats and about 20 salvations by the end of this year and about five people sent out for the sake of the mission in some capacity if we're going to hit those five-year goals. And again, I know when people, you start talking about numbers and it feels a little icky, it's like, listen, you got to remember that numbers are people. Every single number was one of you when we started this church plant. And we thought, hey, how many people do we want to see reached in the first year? How many people do we want to see reached in the second year, third year? Well, we put numbers on it, and some of those numbers are you. Because every number is a person, and every person has a story. And so that's our vision as a church together, and that's the direction we're going to run hard in over the next five years. And, of course, a new location is going to be part of that. I'm so thankful with the new location. If you're new and you haven't been here and you weren't here in December, it's going to be right across the street. We haven't signed the lease yet. But it's coming. Looks very good. I wouldn't say it if we didn't think it was going to happen. Okay, <laughs> so you can keep praying for that process. Let's be right. Well, it's really not even across the street. It's just right next to us. This old Calvary Baptist Church building is going to be such a fun move this year, and I can't wait to lay out that timeline for you guys in the coming weeks. And uh, maybe you're wondering, yeah, but how are we going to accomplish a vision like this? It's huge. How, how are we going to see this happen? Well, we'll lay out more strategy as time goes on. I love strategy. Strategy is like one of my things, you know? I love that. We'll talk about all the steps that we need to take, and we'll lay it out for you guys, and we'll help you see how this all fits together over time. But really, the one thing that we have to do if we're going to see this vision realized, we have to start with prayer. Because God is the only one who builds his church, right? If he doesn't move, then it doesn't matter. And so what I want to do is give you guys two application points today. And the first one is for you if you are a believer here and you call Redemption Church your home. Let me speak to you for just a second by way of application. I want to encourage you to join us in prayer and fasting over the next 21 days. That's, that's the step that I want us to take. Now, I know this is the beginning of the year. Maybe you've already started a reading plan or whatever it is for you. I would ask you to hit pause on that. And I would ask you to do this with us. We've got these printed out. Uh, a couple of these printed out in the back on your way out if you need a, a, a printed copy. But you can also go to the website, redemptionrunoak.com slash 21 days. And you can look at the PDF or a Google Doc version there so that you can follow along every day starting tomorrow. And we're, what we're gonna do is we're gonna start praying and fasting together. And you can read about fasting there. You can come up and talk to me or one of our prayer counselors at the end of, of the uh, service today if you wanna learn more about what that can look like for you. I mean, we have got to start with prayer if we're going to see God do these things in our life. That's keeping our eyes on eternity, right? If we're going to keep our eyes on eternity, then we've got to start by keeping our eyes on eternity in prayer and in fasting. And we want to ask God, we want to beg God to move in bigger ways than we could ever imagine. I'm praying that maybe he'll even blow these numbers out of the water because he wants to do more than we can ask or imagine to build his kingdom here in Roanoke. And I know that he wants to use us. God has promised to use his people the church, to build his kingdom. Well, if we follow Jesus, are we not a part of his people? Are we not his church? And he wants to use you. And he wants to use me to build his kingdom here in Roanoke. So let's pray. We're going to go through this prayer guide together. It's got three, three, three weeks, three sections. We're going to pray for ourselves and our families the first week. We're going to pray for our church the second week. And we're going to pray for the mission the third week. We're going to also meet to pray in person or on a Google Meet every Monday starting tomorrow at our offices. So we'll have a Google Meet link that you can go to on the website uh, so that you can see that. Um, if you're interested in that you can't find the link, just let one of us pastors know or one of our staff members know and we'll get that to you. If you want to come in person to our offices, we would love to pray because listen, if 
we don't seek God on this, then it's all for nothing. It's gotta be a hope that lasts. And so I hope that you'll take that step with us, starting the year off in that direction, eyes on eternity, begging God to move. But listen, the second application point I have today is for you if you're not a believer here. Maybe you don't follow Jesus. Maybe, maybe you wouldn't say that you believe in him yet. He's not your king. You don't have hope in him yet. Well, I would just encourage you just to consider it today and to put your hope in him. Peter says in verse 13, set your hope completely on the grace that's given to us by Jesus. Set your hope on him. If you've never believed, put your hope in him today. He's worth it. He will never let you down. It's a hope that lasts. And so what I want to encourage you to do then is if you put your hope in him to get baptized. We're actually going to be baptizing next week. I'm so excited about that. We have several people lined up who are ready to follow Jesus in this first step of obedience in their faith. Now we call it a first step of obedience because really in the New Testament, when we see somebody believe in Jesus and start following him, that new birth, that new hope that they have, that living hope, they get baptized right afterward. Believe and then baptized. Believe and baptized. And so we want to step out in obedience in following Jesus. So if you've believed in Jesus for the first time, maybe over the last month or two, if you've been here and you're new, we would really encourage you to get baptized next week and take that first step of obedience so that you can follow Jesus in that symbolic gesture of baptism. Baptism doesn't save you, but it certainly does show the world that you're a Jesus follower now. And so I would encourage you to do that. You can fill out this card that we have on your seats today and drop it in the buckets on the way out. Or you can come up and talk to one of our prayer counselors who's gonna be here for you for that purpose so that they can talk to you about what that step could look like. Maybe you're curious and you wanna ask questions. Come up and talk to one of our prayer counselors today for that. But listen, don't wait. That's the one thing you don't wanna do because delayed obedience is disobedience. So you need to take that first step of obedience in your faith walk today because what we hope for is what we live for. So let's keep our eyes on eternity this year as a church and set our hope on our eternal Savior. Let me pray for us. God, thanks so much for listening with us today. We hope that it was an encouragement to you. But you know, we don't see this as a replacement for gathering with other believers in a local church context. So if you don't have a local church, we would encourage you to plug in with one wherever you are. And if you're in Roanoke, Virginia, we'd love to invite you to plug in with us here at Redemption Church. And you're welcome anytime to gather with us. But you can check us out online at our, our website, redemptionroanoke.com. You can look for other content or resources there. But thanks again for listening.